My name is Lisa Henderson, and I am the host of Daring Parenting. I'm delighted to have you join us today for another exciting episode and period of learning for parents, grandparents, and anybody that works with children, teens, or young adults. And it's also information we can use really at any age. I'm delighted to have today a returning guest, one of my favorite, favorite speakers and guests, Dr. Stephen Prees. Now, Steve Prees has been practicing psychiatry since he finished the Emory program in 1980. He's a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, past president of the Georgia Psychiatric Physicians Association. He served as chief of staff. He taught at Emory University, and he also, in the year 2000, was honored to be named Psychiatrist of the Year by the Georgia Psychiatric Physicians Association. So, all of that being said, he's a wonderful speaker and is able to explain things in a way that people like me that don't have a medical education can understand. So, I'd like to welcome once again Dr. Stephen Prees. Thank you for being here as a regular, wonderful guest on Daring Parenting. You're very welcome. I hope I can help somebody. So for a lot of years, we thought the brain couldn't change. You were born with a certain brain for the most part, and that's kind of what you got. When was it that medical or other doctors discovered that the brain could change? Well, I think it was the experience of uh, patients that they would see the change happening that uh, convinced them that, that it wasn't just stuck, that after you'd had a stroke or a brain injury uh, and then improved, they thought maybe after six months it was that would be as far as you could go, and then they realized that wasn't the case. The other historic thing that occurs to me is that we sort of accidentally discovered brain changes. Uh, back in the 50s, they were trying to help people with mental illness mm -hmm. and thought they had discovered a treatment for, I believe it was TB, uh, Thorazine. And they discovered that Thorazine actually helps people with their mental illness and some of their hallucinations or delusions. So we accidentally discovered that a medicine could help mental illness in about the early 50s. So that sort of raised the question, well, what else can help? And they started looking for things that might uh, help with uh, uh, how you're thinking. I'm going slightly off track here, but I'm curious when did they discover that ECT worked for mental illness? Like, how did that, was that kind of an accidental thing? Like, we'll get in and fry some things in there? Uh, it, not quite like that, but back in the 30s, they were, again, trying to treat mental illness. And I think the discovery was that those patients who had seizures improved after their seizure. So then they launched on a course of trying to discover how do we create a seizure in the brain because there's evidence that after the seizure their depression for example is much better for a significant period of time so the search was for how to create a seizure and one of the ways was to make them hypoglycemic so they would they would lower your blood sugar until you had a seizure uh, there were some other things they injected I think oil molecules to see I think that was one of the ways to create a seizure finally what they hit on was electricity would give you a seizure. So electroconvulsive therapy is, that's ECT, right. electroconvulsive seizure therapy. So you put the electrodes on the head in a different varied places, and there was experimentation about where to put the electrodes, and then cause the seizure. And then how do you cause a seizure that's harmless? 
So we learned that we had to first paralyze people so that the seizure wouldn't break any bones or crush any teeth. You know, it wasn't just one flew over to the cuckoo's nest and horrible scenes like that. So they would paralyze them, anesthetize them for only five minutes at a time, then give them the electrical charge at a microvolt uh, through the head, cause the seizure, which was could be demonstrated. Uh, you would paralyze everything but one, but one arm or one hand, and okay. you could see the hand twitching and having a seizure. So you knew they had the seizure, but it didn't cause any problems anywhere else in the body. Then three, five minutes later, you wake them up. They've had the seizure. You let them recover from the anesthesia. And then in many cases, they go on to work. So you could do that early in the morning and do it on a weekly or monthly basis if you had to have maintenance ECT. But it worked. So, But the, the idea was to cause the seizure. The seizure is what seemed to be therapeutic. I know that ECT is used nowadays for depression that is kind of untreatable. How has it changed since the early days? Well, I'm not an expert at ECT. I've done it uh, in the early stages of my career uh, and my training, of course, but I never specialized in that. So I'm really not an expert to speak on how it's evolved, but they've refined it in such a way that uh, memory problems are minuscule to non-existent. Uh, side effects are very uh, minuscule to non-existent. It works and is reliable. Uh, it's still considered an emergency treatment and only comes in after psychotherapy and medication and everything else has been tried. But it still has a good track record for saving people's lives. But something changes in the brain. Uh, well, and that's the curious part. So I would. it's kind of hard to ask you to pack 30-something years of knowledge into 30 <laughs> minutes. But you've been so great about explaining to me about the cells in the brain and the fat around them. Can you give us just a little overview of what the cells in the brain are like and then a layman's definition of neuroplasticity? Well, your brain is sort of like oatmeal. If you've ever had oatmeal that looks a little dry in the bowl, that's about the consistency of your brain. By the way, before I get too far from it, the latest uh, evidence on deep brain stimulation, where they actually put the electrodes through your skull into the brain at the proper place and have those needles then cause a tiny electrical shock, just microvolts and, and many millimeter, micromillimeters apart, that still works for many conditions, uh, depression among them. So it would seem that the electricity was literally giving the brain more connectivity uh, and causing it to have more energy so that the cells could talk to each other. And that's what those cells do. There are, of course, all kinds of different cells in the brain, not just the structural cells, but the cells that communicate and relay messages and memories and, and impulses for movement. If for some reason the ends, the dendrites and the axons, the ends of the nerves are perhaps too far apart, then even though they're functioning to, okay, it's the same thing as you standing so far away from me that even though I'm yelling at you, you can't hear me or can't understand what I'm saying. Okay. So in a very minuscule way in the brain, if something is not anatomically related correctly or near enough, then it just doesn't communicate with that cell the way it should. So we have come up with medications that will then excrete more chemical between those two nerve cells to allow the transmission to take place. Okay, so that does it lengthen them, lengthen the little uh, communicators, or does it just make it easier for them to communicate? The medication makes it possible for them to communicate by adding 
the neurotransmitter between them, increasing the amount of neurotransmitter between them. So like if I took a garden hose and we're far away, it's not really, we're not actually coming closer, but our communication has improved. Right. Okay. Right. So can with two with two cans with a string. I mean, okay. <laughs> rather than just yelling, we figured out some better way to amplify the message. How much of a role does genetics play in the way these communicate with each other? Do we do we even know that? Well, of course, we're discovering that all the time. But a way for genetics to influence is perhaps the way the anatomy is laid down. Does it lay down those cells? too close or too far apart from each other, does it allow for them to produce enough neurotransmitter uh, without having to be influenced by something else? Uh, And then, of course, you get everything else that influences that and influences that communication from hungry, angry, lonely, tired, uh, and maybe it doesn't communicate as well to being malnourished, uh, to be undernourished, to be improperly nourished. We talk about inflammation and and uh, all that that does to the brain. So all of this affects the way these communicate with each other? Yes. Okay. And yes. I know this is oversimplified, but that's what it takes for me to yes, understand thanks for, thanks for making that disclaimer for me. Yes, it is oversimplified. <laughs> yes, but I mean, it definitely helps as we talk about it. This is Lisa Henderson, and you're listening to Daring Parenting. We'll continue our discussion with psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Pries on the topic of neuroplasticity. In just a moment, he's going to explain to us exactly what neuroplasticity is and tell us what's possible with the human brain. Back in a moment with Daring Parenting. <music> 